Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. We're also joined from New York by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. And our guest this week is Ross McEwen, the chief executive of RBS. This week, we'll be taking a look at Bank of America Merrill Lynch as it struggles to recover its M&A franchise. Secondly, a look at RBS as Ross McEwen celebrates five years in the job and ten years on from the crisis that saw it bailed out by the British government. And finally, a look at Barclays in the US as it goes head-to-head with Goldman Sachs and other consumer banks. First, though, to that Bank of America Merrill Lynch story. Stephen, you and others wrote what insiders have been calling a hatchet job on Bank of America – The M&A franchise there has rather fallen off a cliff over recent months. It's been a pretty strong franchise. They've been up there among the best of them for years, but it's had a far weaker time in the last few quarters. What's been going on and how important is it? Well, basically, they're very concerned that they're losing out on their home turf over in the US. Last year, they were in fourth, right in there amongst the biggest Wall Street banks, And this year, there's been lots of consternation that they've fallen down to seventh in the league tables, which is used to judge who's doing well and who's not doing well in investment banking. Now, most notable is that they've fallen below Barclays and Jefferies, two much smaller M&A houses over in the US. And that's really sort of kicked off a bit of a fury internally. Christian Meisner, one of the heads of the investment bank, has already left. And there's focus on whether some other people may follow him out the door, such as Diego DiGiorgi, who is another very senior person involved in the M&A team. One of the big problems here has been losses on a loan that they made. There's a South African company called Steinhoff that they had a lot of money out to. It went bad. And Bank of America were one of the banks that got quite badly hit. Since then, they've really pulled back on their risk appetite. They're focusing on fewer clients. And so that's their argument. The reason we're not earning as much this year is because we don't want to. We're being more focused. Or rather, that's the argument of some of the investment bankers when they're defending their performance to their chief executive. But it's the CEO, they argue, who's pulled back on the appetite to lend. There's been a bit of a blame game going on about whether it's the bankers aren't being allowed to take the risks needed to win the deals. Whereas in response, the leaders are saying, you have plenty of leeway to win deals. You're just not doing it, which is why people are being kicked out. Now, they brought in quite an interesting chap, an Australian called Mr. Coder who's been over in Hong Kong running some of their equity operations. We were told by some people internally he's very fond of boot camp style military workouts. And and one of his party tricks when he's out drinking with colleagues is to impress them with one-armed press-ups. So they're really brought in somebody who's not going to take any excuses to turn around this unit when he starts at the beginning of next year. So this is sort of the latest string and a lot of soul-searching among some of the world's investment banks 
wondering why they're not doing as well. They're really dropping off compared to your JP Morgans, Goldman Sachs, and increasingly small boutiques with no balance sheet, no real relationships, who seem to be eating a lot of the big banks' lunches at the moment. And that's a particular cause for concern at Bank of America. They're lending loads of money, providing other financial services at sometimes great cost, sometimes at a loss, in order to build relationships with these clients who are then turning away and going to a small boutique with five employees when they need merger and acquisition advice. And Bank of America is missing out on the associated millions of dollars in fees. No wonder Chief Executive Brian Moynihan is getting cross. Thank you very much for that, Stephen. Let's move on to our second topic and a look at RBS. So, Nick, we sat down with Chief Executive Ross McEwen a few days ago. This was to coincide with 10 years on from the financial crisis, five years he's been in the job himself. And I guess he can say that the turnaround of the bank into a profitable business from what has for almost a decade been a loss-making institution is progressing. He talked in the interview with us about a number of very interesting things. He focused quite a lot on digital innovation, as so many banks are doing these days. Here's a clip about what he said in terms of whether the bank was prioritising developing the digitalization of its core systems or setting up new standalone offerings. Well, we're doing both. So we're working on how do you digitise the core bank as our primary opportunity, which is, you know, 16 million customers in the personal bank and, you know, a million customers in the SME mid-market business bank. So we're digitising those. At the same time, we are having a look at should we be putting a brand new venture out into the marketplace that does things completely differently. We're working on a number of technology-driven innovations that will use some open banking and some pretty new technology going forward. We are trialling a number at the moment, and you do a trial before you launch, so we're not ready to fully launch into marketplace, other than ESMAE, which has gone out into the marketplace, which is electronic SME lending. What's that called? ESMAE, E-S-M-E, so it's E for electronic SME. And if you go onto the website and have a look at uh, ESMAE, it is actually a direct competition for peer-to-peer lending. And it's run on a, an Israeli platform owned by a company called EasyBob, which we use and we do all the funding and we use our credit criteria for it. But it's, uh, you know, customers can go any 24 hours of the day, seven days a week and put their own application in and it will score them up and make a decision uh, and fund in 15 minutes if the application is something we're interested in. So, Nick, do you buy this dual strategy? How does that compare with what others are doing? Well, I mean, it is. He's kind of talking about here one of the big issues that every bank is facing. And I think coming to the conclusion that a lot of his peers are increasingly coming to, which is they used to talk about, can you modernize your old systems or is it worth just starting from scratch, making up something completely new so you can compete and move quickly with the smaller players like Monzo or even people like Goldman Sachs who set up a completely new retail offering or even or even the peer-to-peer lenders like funding circle and so on that have a slightly different model but are also increasingly competing in sme spaces for example. yeah exactly but obviously at the same time we've seen what's happened to tsb earlier this year moving everything onto a brand new system all at once if you're a big established bank can be pretty difficult so i think that has also encouraged this idea that the best strategy even if it is sometimes a bit expensive because you're in effect running two engines at once is keep your old systems fresh and updated as much as you can 
try all the new things and then hope that long term if they work well you can move things over to them once you know it's working and can handle everything and of course reputationally rbs can't really afford to make a mistake here because they've probably been amongst the hardest hit by systems outages over the past few years as they probably scrimped a bit on their technology investment in the post-crisis years right yeah i mean they've not given the amount of losses that they've suffered over the last decade they i think at times didn't necessarily have too much spare cash to invest in improving but that has come back to bite them at times i think they received one of the biggest fines ever for an outage they had a couple of years back yes the final clip now is ross McEwen talking about the whole area of consumer debt it's very interesting that rbs are probably a couple of years ago now decided semi-vocally that they were going to pull out of the whole business of using teaser rates particularly on the credit card side to win business with short-term offers and then bump people up to higher interest rates this is something that ross McEwen seemed at the time to be taking a kind of moral stand on and he developed on that point in what he said to us on this area of consumer debt But I think a bank's job is not to leave people in a bad debt position. And unfortunately, when you look at the debt in this country, it is getting higher and higher for individuals. And you can't tell me that that's a great position to be in in another five or ten years when we have a decline in the economy, unemployment goes up and people are left with massive debts. And I think the banks should be in a position to help customers get into a better financial position. Now, should they choose at that time to go and do something different and borrow a bit more to do something different and then pay it down, that's fine. But don't leave customers in a position where they are living from payday to payday to payday. And unfortunately in this country, about 60% of the population do exactly that. We just don't want to exacerbate the problem for customers of having more debt. We want to actually help them pay it down. We do a million reviews with customers face to face every year. I was in one of our branches this morning actually across the road chatting to the team. They're doing regular financial reviews with customers and I said what's the biggest issue you're dealing with and they said getting customers to pay down their debt and consolidate cards to get rid of debt and put them onto a payment process. Now that's things banks should be doing instead of more and more debt for customers. How do I get you to pay down your debt in a way that is helpful and allows you to keep living your life? So Nick, clearly Ross McEwen personally and RBS maybe broadly trying to carve out this image as a responsible lender. How does that stack up to you? Does that seem credible and is it the sensible thing to do? I mean, it's a funny one. You could be forgiven for being a little bit bitter about this slightly because as you said, they decided a while back that they'd stop using these teaser rates and presented it as if this was a way to be very transparent, really clear, and serving customers better. And the almost immediate result was for them to lose quite a large number of customers who wanted the teaser rates. But more broadly, it is a very delicate balance for banks at the moment. Default rates are still at pretty much historic lows, and nobody wants to miss out on that. But given what happened in the last financial crisis, I think they're probably particularly careful in these areas but it is something that the bank of england is increasingly aware of i mean they sent warnings out to every chief in the industry earlier this year telling people to keep an eye on things nothing's blown up yet but there is a concern that these rates aren't going to last forever and you don't want to be relying on optimistic accounting standards when things go wrong yeah consumer debt is one of the bank of england's chief financial stability concerns i think they've said interesting in this whole context though that rbs is trying to 
rebuild its reputation, having been really hit on the SME side, particularly by this GRG unit, the global restructuring group that they had, which was accused of being pretty aggressive with a lot of their SME clients who got into financial difficulty over taking too much credit or whatever. This, I suppose, re-imaging has to be connected to that to some extent as well, doesn't it? Oh, certainly, yes. It's safe to say they've got a while yet to go to really recover from the amount of damage they took, especially on the business banking side. I mean, we had the SA published lists of essentially the most popular big banks in the UK a few weeks back, and RBS was firmly at the bottom on every measure. Great, Nick. Thank you very much for that. Let's go over for our final segment to Laura Noonan, our US banking editor in New York. Laura's been looking at the launch by Barclays of a new digital banking service for consumers. So, Laura, Barclays is getting into online banking in the US. Barclays already has an online bank in the US, but it's a bit niche. It does savings and loans, but the loans are only for existing customers. And of course, it has Barclays Card, which is one of the biggest credit card lenders. So what's happening now is Barclays is creating a checking account next year. And it's going to expand its lending offering so that it will lend to all customers, not just to customers who have existing savings or cards with Barclays. And the idea behind this is that Barclays could become someone's primary bank in the US, possibly even somebody's only bank in the US. So this sounds very much like what Goldman's doing with Marcus, which is just launched in the UK, having rolled that out in the US. It's the same basic idea and addressing the same gap in the market as what Goldman has seen with Marcus. Both are online-only banks that can operate with lower costs and they can win market share from US banks who charge quite a lot for their services. That's the idea anyway, that by not having any branches, they can have lower costs themselves, they can pass those savings on to customers. They also both have pretty high deposit rates, around 2%, and it might seem odd, but they both also have quite a big focus on having live customer service call centres. So the idea is that they both will be able to connect you pretty quickly to a real person when you need to talk to a real person, rather than having those rather infuriating electronic menus that you get with a lot of the big banks. I guess the key difference between what Marcus is doing and what Barclays will be doing is they come from very different starting points. So Goldman Sachs, as we know, was brand new to retail banking when it launched Marcus. That meant it had no natural customer base, but it also benefited from the mystique around the Goldman's name. And it was able to really position itself as being a disruptor, a newcomer, even though it was already a very big bank, obviously, in other areas. Barclays already has a big US consumer base, which is a good thing. They have 13 million customers, 10 million of those through Barclays cards, and then another 3 million through its existing online bank. That means they have a very captive base and they see a lot of potential to cross-sell and to make those existing customers into real online banking customers. And it also has the advantage of knowing the business of lending and retail banking very well. The only challenge with that is that when you come from a bank that has a large traditional bank, it can be hard to really break the mould, both in terms of positioning yourself as being a true disruptor, but also in terms of having a certain approach to doing things internally. So I think Goldman is coming to retail banking without any preconceived ideas about how things should be done without any legacy hang-ups, and it kind of remains to be seen whether Barclays can truly do the same, given that Barclays does have a lot of experience in the retail banking space elsewhere. And so for Barclays, what is the point of this? In terms of why Barclays are really doing this, there's a couple of different aspects to it. The primary one, I guess, is the most basic reason that any business does anything. They say that they're exploiting a market opportunity and finding a new way to make money. So they believe that there is market share to be won in US retail banking. The reason that they want to do it as well is that Barclays already has a big investment bank in the US. It already has Barclay Card in the US. 
And between the sides of those two existing businesses, they have to have an intermediate holding company. That's a very expensive setup. So they've already had to put in place a big structure around that. If they can get a decent online bank in the US as well, they can spread the cost of this IHC over a higher number of business divisions, and that's going to make everyone's earnings look better. Also, if they can get a lot of deposits in through this online bank, that will help them to diversify the funding sources for Barclays International. As we know, that was the ring fence entity where the UK forced Barclays to split its UK retail operations off from the rest of the operations. So the US retail and the global investment bank sit within the ring fence Barclays International. And certainly if you had some deposits there, that would help to diversify the funding source of that. So Barclays are certainly cognizant of that as being a benefit, but I don't get the sense that that's a primary driver for them on this. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Stephen and Nick here in the studio. Thank you also to Ross McEwen for speaking to us from RBS and to Laura for speaking to us from New York. Thank you for listening. Do take a look at our latest subscription offer if you're not already a subscriber. That's at ft.com slash offer. You can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.